Hello, and welcome to episode 169 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Robert Randolph. This week's host, Christian Romney, talks to a trio of senior technical leaders at Newbank, Ed Weibel, Lindsey Blimes, and Justin Getland. Sit back and open your ears, your heart, and your mind to Christian, Ed, Lindsey, and Justin on episode 169 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of the Cognicast. I'm your host, Christian Romney, and I have the distinct pleasure today of bringing you something a little bit different. Today, joining me, I have not one guest, but three distinguished new bankers. We have Ed Weibel, Justin Getland, and Lindsay Blimies. Did I get all of that correct? Yes. Yep. Wonderful. All right. No, you well. totally screwed mine up. <laughs> well, all right, gang. Welcome to the Cognicast. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have you here. So we are going to kick off the show the way that we normally do. We usually ask our guests if they would share an experience of art with us. And I guess this one's for all three of you. I don't think we've had a chance to experience art together yet. I can start. I can give an individual story. I just actually came back from a few weeks in Sao Paulo and I did a lot of walking around the city and the city is covered in really cool graffiti, which is one of my favorite types of art to look at. So I spent a lot of time walking and photographing graffiti on the sides of buildings, some very big artwork, some very small artwork. And I thought it was all really amazing. So oh, that's that was neat. my recent experience. Yeah. Awesome. Ed, how about um, you? Yeah, I can share something that's, I guess, top of mind because I just moved into a new apartment and there, you know, the art in question is, I guess, the prior owner's style. And so what we're experiencing is extreme darkness in the apartment. Almost all the windows have been covered up with black steel. There's a bathroom that has black glass in it and a black toilet and a black sink that can be confused for a black urinal. And it is so dark that people have visited and not been able to find the toilet in the bathroom. So it's, it's definitely an experience. I don't know if it's, if it is the art that I would choose, but it's definitely the art that we are living in right now. So that's, that's, that's what I'm going through. <laughs> that is great. I want to know how it can, or who confused it <laughs> for a urinal. <laughs> I'll have to send you a photo of that later. He's a mistake to make. That's good stuff. How about you, Justin? I will share that it has been a long and crazy two and a half years since the world went pear-shaped. But a couple of weeks ago, my wife, my wonderful, wonderful wife, got us tickets to go see Joe Bonamassa in concert. And it was my first live concert where I wasn't on stage uh, in two and a half years and we were like three rows from the stage and uh, watching a somebody who is virtuosic is that a word a virtuoso with their instrument from like 12 feet away was quite a way to re-enter although actually now that i think about it that is not my first concert in two and a half years i did get to see the foo fighters in uh, november in las vegas luckily before oh, Taylor wow. Hawkins terribly passed away a couple of weeks ago so there's a sad note. Sorry about that, everybody. Yeah. And I I guess you're going to be sharing experience of art with numerous people here in a few short hours. Correct. I have a gig tonight. So. That's great. 
And I get Big Mike's Barbecue in Apex, North Carolina. All right. Very cool. So in preparation for this episode, you know, we we asked new bankers to submit a few questions and I'm going to spring a few of those on you if that's all right. One question that we had is how do you build and scale a team that works with technologies that aren't used everywhere? And Lindsay, I'd like uh, for you to field this one if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, I, I like this question. I think building and scaling a team is is hard anywhere. And then when you are doing that on a technology stack that's not necessarily taught in schools or easy to source for, I think adds an extra dimension. But I think ultimately what you look for in building the team is smart, motivated people. And you know, being tech stack agnostic really opens up who you talk to and who you can bring onto the team. And as long as those folks, you know, have the the right kind of attitude and interest in what you're trying to build, you can learn pretty much any tech stack, right? So then the the challenge turns to how do you get an efficient way to teach folks the details of how you build things in your organization. So I think it's a combination of really focusing on not the tech when you do the interviewing and the hiring, right? Just getting, like I said, smart, motivated people and then building a great education operation inside the company. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Hire the smart people and the rest will sort of take care of itself. That's yeah, great. They should hear it <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. And it occurs to me that I won't necessarily run the whole thing this way and just like picking on you folks that we should feel free to just anybody speak up, pipe up and, you know, make it more conversational. So this one's for any and all of you. What are some of the challenges that companies are likely to face when acquiring another company? I can share some thoughts. I'm curious to hear other thoughts as well. But as someone that's experienced that, it immediately becomes a little bit confusing in terms of planning your technical strategy, you know, often in, in great detail, not knowing that acquisitions are coming or which acquisitions they will be or which technologies they will bring. And, you know, hedging all of those bets doesn't, isn't really a thing. Like you, you have to sort of, you know, make a coherent strategy for the company you have the, the way I've sort of, you know, what I've been learning through our acquisitions is that acquiring new companies doesn't mean that whatever you were doing before has become invalid or your strategy or your decisions, the choices you made historically need to be stretched over. Now, every, every single company that's part of the group, I think, you know, similar to having multiple supported languages, right, where you've got a community and investment going into supporting engineers who use them, you have the same thing with multiple supported tech stacks. And I think that there may be urgent things around integrating the front end of that so that customers are having the right experiences, but integrating the back of it or unifying is far from obvious from a business perspective often and, and far from easy to do. So I think that this concept that things can coexist and the existence of new things doesn't you know, negate the value of, of other things is the mindset that, that I've come to have about it. I would also add that when talking about like acquiring a company, it's important to have clarity about why you are acquiring a company, right? You can want the the product that the company has built. You can want the people that work at the company and you can want the technology right behind what they've built. And in or, some or combination, the customers. 
or yes, the customers as well, right? But like, and and probably in some combination, but I actually think having a lot of clarity about the sort of priority in which you want those things can help drive how you integrate the company as well, right? And sort of the steps you take and the priority you put on technical integration or not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't resist, but I, I think the one, you know, my favorite thesis to pick on when it comes to M&A is when doing an M&A transaction accelerates time to build X thing because the integration costs and the people that will be bearing them are not considered in the equation. And so I find that it's hard to consider everything that goes into a, a full integration. And often they're like, we'll just accelerate X thing is, you know, turns out to be part of the story. So I really like that thesis to be prodded and probed and double clicked and triple clicked on when acceleration of some technical deliverable is the is the thesis because I think we've all we've all seen you know the integration work that comes with it and not all of that's obvious up front. Yeah and I would I, w- I would add that there's the old saw that that all software problems are really people problems and the same is true for all MA problems. I think one thing that that often gets overlooked in MA is that when you know you're buying this company as, as Lindsay said for its technology or its you know, his team and their skills or the, the customers. But quite often people don't put enough thought and energy into understanding like, well, the thing that got that company to where they are is something you can't, you can't extract, right? It's part of like that team did a thing together and they built a relationship with each other. And that relationship has weight and gravity in you know the path that got them to where they got acquired and you have to recognize that and and address it as part of the integration strategy because otherwise you know an acquisition is a potentially alienating event for for both the acquired and the acquirer or you're smashing together two groups of people that you know weren't necessarily looking for that to be to, to, to be part of their their world and you have to make that part of your playbook in order to have successful acquisitions and, and it's the kind of thing that, that people often overlook in the challenges great great information you know i sit here and it occurred to me that i introduced you by name but i didn't really tell anybody what it is that any of you do <laughs> just because like to me of course i know what all of you do but maybe we could back up a minute and uh, sort of take another stab at introducing yourselves for the first time. Sorry to have missed that prompt. So Justin, go first. Uh, What is it that you do here? Who are you again? Hi, everybody. I'm Justin. I have been on the Cognicast before many times. I am co-founder, once and still CEO of Cognitech Incorporated. But my role since we were acquired by New Bank, now new, is in addition to being still on paper, the CEO of this U.S. corporation. I am now the general manager and senior director of engineering for common technology platforms, which basically means the teams that do the sort of low-level developer tooling and infrastructure and IT-related parts of our technology stack. Ed, how about you? Sure. Hi, I'm Ed. I'm a co-founder of NewBank, so I've been here longer than anyone. And I have played multiple roles in the history of the company. I was the CTO of NewBank until we were about, I don't know, a thousand engineers or so. And I'm now in sort of my second career with NewBank, which is incredibly exciting. I've moved back into a technical role. And so what I'm looking for is opportunities to generate large impact by getting deep on 
a problem that either has a large blast radius or a lot of leverage and really trying to work to make that happen technically and connecting and, and, and guiding teams to do things that are bigger than, than one person. So that's been the last six months or so. So it's still pretty new, but it's it's been super exciting and kind of terrifying, but uh, steep, steep learning curve. That's it's been it's been really great. Yeah, you're nailing it. Thanks, man. Over to Lindsay. Yeah, that leaves me. So yeah, I'm Lindsay. I'm a vice president of engineering at Newbank. I joined January 2020, just before everything kind of went a little sideways. But Ed actually recruited me to the team. And it's been a great two, two and a half years at this point. And I was joking before we started the podcast today that I don't really have a name for my team. I manage a bunch of the engineers at Newbank. I really enjoy having a wide portfolio of things, right? Every day is a little bit different. Some of the team works on some of the customer-facing products. Some of them work on horizontal platforms. But but that is the running joke that my team is kind of the catch-all other group of engineers. <laughs> so Everywhere. That's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great. Actually, this uh, that's a great segue. And I, I want to come back to a theme that was in one of Ed's answers about not knowing. And really, that got me thinking about there are a whole lot of things in life and business. I mean, we just came out of this pandemic that are unknown or even unknowable. But how does a company, especially one that is now getting to be the size that Newbank is, remain nimble? Yeah, I think this is this is like a constant topic of discussion, right? Because it's not easy. And when you say the size Newbank is, it you know, for anyone who doesn't know, we're something like five thousand employees today across a bunch of different countries and time zones. And I mean, there's there's a bunch of different approaches to nimble or what does nimble mean? But I think we talk about autonomy for teams a lot and getting the right size and shape of teams so that they're not so big that there's too high a coordination cost, but that they have the right seniority, tenure, skill set mix, all of those things to be able to get done the things that they need to get done. And then making sure that those teams have clear missions, focus, things like that, so that they can be nimble. I think that's that's aspirational. There's always some coordination cost, but I think that's that's the overall approach. I, I was reminded the other day of another truism, which is we're at whatever it is, 5,000, 6,000. We're, we're, we're quite a bit bigger than, than we were even a year ago, and, and we're in that sort of phase of our growth. And so quite a lot of the conversations that we have internally are like, okay, well, we're this huge company now and there's all this overhead to communication and how do you continue to make sure that that's minimized and, and that you can stay nimble. And then I was having a conversation with somebody who's at AWS and they pointed out that they're at a million and a half people now and that they were looking at us sort of across this bridge and going, oh God, what it must be like to be working at a startup again. (laughs) So part of it is always just remembering to understand the context that you're in and and don't get too caught up in the grass is always greener. Like you have to be vigilant about the things that that you stand on as principles that allow you to be nimble, but don't get too caught up in like, hey, we're 5,000 people. So we're huge now when you certainly have other places you can look and see what else the world might look like. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, since the day I started, people have been telling me how big Newbank is. And so it's it's all relative, right? And it's always going to be bigger. Well, hopefully going to be bigger than it was before. But you're right, there are much bigger places out there and there are plenty of 
things you can learn from companies that have done this well or done it poorly over time. And I, and I think there's plenty of selective memory about how the past was, right? Aside from being a foreign country where they do things differently. I think we, we tend to remember some of the things that felt nice in the past and sort of block out some of the things that were scary or exhausting. And there were plenty of those. So I wouldn't say that, that you know, things have gotten worse necessarily. But, but the one thing that I really cherish at Newbank, and I think we do really well, is foster a mindset and a mentality in teams of ownership. So it's very clear what you own and you own it sort of soup to nuts, right? You're closing all your feedback loops. You're understanding, you know, why it is you're doing something. You're seeing the impact of what you're doing. You have a very direct connection to, you know, shipping something and seeing, you know, why you shipped it and if it had the impact you hoped. And you can do that in a large organization as long as you have clear scopes and you're building on top of, good tooling and good platforms that allow you to do that sort of full circle ownership for things without having an enormous sort of minimum team size or needing a huge array of specialists to to operate in a team. So I think that that sort of preserving the ownership and those feedback loops with really high level tooling and platforms internally makes the company feel smaller because you're sort of focused on your mission and you're running really fast to do your thing. So I think that's something that I would fight to preserve at Nubank and I think is is alive and well. I agree. And I want to add, like, not only is, is all of that very important, and I mentioned like making sure that teams know what they own and know their mission, but also know what they are allowed to do without having to ask for permission, right? Like being able to move fast and make decisions locally. I find that especially as the team grows quickly, we always have a lot of new people who may not have grown up in that kind of environment. And so making sure that we are kind of preserving that culture and teaching the new folks like how to have that autonomy, how to use it responsibly, but also like how to feel empowered to make decisions and not wait for someone else to tell them what to do is, is super important. Which reminds me of one last sort of thing that that I think we learned over the years and I would love to keep doubling down on, which is make sure the gatekeepers, right, that add friction and block things and constrain people are mostly automated robots as opposed to other people. Because then there's something about the way you approach a pull request that's failing your PR, PR checks because your policy has been encoded in them versus some other person in the company that won't let you do your thing. And you just treat those things very differently. And there's a bunch of weird social dynamics around around the second one. So like robotic gatekeeping when gatekeeping is necessary, I think is a, is a secret to uh, secret of youth maybe at, at this scale. Wow, that's super insightful. Actually, I loved all three of your answers and they were all sort of touching on a common theme here, which I also think is a, huge part of um, Newbank's success, and that is our company culture. I was blown away when I first joined Newbank at how strong the culture was, not only how how healthy I think our cultural principles are, but the the strength of like how often we transmit that culture and and how well. And so I was hoping that the three of you might Tell us a little bit, you know, or tell the world a little bit about our company culture. What are the things that we believe in? What are the principles that make Newbank tick? I can kick this one off. And then I'm curious also to hear Justin and Lindsay's take on it. But as a co-founder, going going way back to the beginning, I remember sort of viewing the world as full of giants and thinking 
that we have to find a different way to compete with these massive financial institutions. And to be honest, the, you know, the world still is full of giants in that in that respect. Like we are tiny compared to most of our competitors globally. But the thing that I came up with was really that, you know, we weren't going to have more money. We weren't going to have more political sway. We weren't going to have more scale. The thing that we might be able to do differently would be more of a mindset shift, right? We could be the best. We could be an organization that is fearless in terms of going as deep as necessary to solve the problem in a better way, to drive better outcomes for our customers and not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and really build some technology when that's the the, the best answer. And I think that contrasted in the beginning very much with that sort of integrator mindset of banks, whereby you know a lot of engineers that work at big banks, I'm not sure we would consider them to be engineers so much as integrators or vendor managers. And so I think that mindset of ownership and excellence and quality and sort of, you know, everybody in the company is is there to do something that is excellent, right? We're going to be the best, right? We're not going to have any of the other things. We're going to be the best. And obviously, you know, you're not always the best in every in every way. And that doesn't matter so much as the fact that you believe that that's what you're striving for and that you're surrounded by people who are also trying to do the best work of their lives. And honestly, just believing that you're on a team that can win the World Cup, right? To use a, an analogy that's maybe a cliche in Brazil, but you have to believe that you're on that level to be on that level. And I think that that was sort of my, my goal initially was to get folks really, really dialed into that sort of global excellence as, as the goal. And I'm really proud of that because I feel that that's still in the air in the company, right? We don't breathe the same air anymore, but you can feel it. You can feel it everywhere. So I think that's probably where that piece came from, at least for me. I'll pause and, and let Lindsay and Justin sort of compliment on other pieces because obviously there's there's multiple facets. Well, before I talk anything about the, the culture here at Newbank, I do want to just tell a quick story because of what you just said, Ed, which is now that, that we are the size that we're at, we tend to get this influx of requests for conversation, like companies who want to find out more about how we did what we did or are on some path or you know whatever. And I took a call from the CTO of a bank that's just getting started, you know, it's trying to follow some of the same path. But his major question was about how we decided to build as much as we built because the path they were sort of heading down was as you were kind of pointing out and it's like more sort of integrators they're, they're they're buying off the shelf platforms and piecing them together and and sort of putting their own brand on that and then taking that to market and his question to me was you know how did we decide to, to build as much as we build how how could we do that and and i said look you have to be a certain well first of all i wasn't here right so what i'm about to say i'm really casting backwards towards decisions that you made Ed, but you have to be a certain amount of crazy to decide to do that, but you also have to have really internalized, well, I can't do what everybody else did. I literally can't. I don't have the the space, the time, the cash flow, the the, the pull, right? The, the various things. So you have to pick something that seems a little crazy because they already did all the stuff that didn't. And and I think that 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 sort of rebellious attitude, the the like, you know, nothing is off the table kind of attitude really permeates what a lot of, you know, how I see a lot of people thinking about the work here. And then the other thing that I would just say, 
quickly without going into like, what are the specific principles that the company operates on or the specific principles that engineering here works on, both of which are well-documented internally. And, and we talk about them all the time. What I love is that we talk about them all the time. We talk about our principles all the time. And we talk about principles in the, in the sense of a principle is something that helps you make a decision that helps you be able to say no to certain parts of the world that hope to be able to say yes to other parts of the world. And, you know, whether or not I believe the principles themselves are awesome, I do. I just love the fact that we never stop talking about them at any level of the company from individual squads all the way up to like, you know, all company meetings. It's, it's always part of the conversation. Yeah, Justin, maybe one anecdote related to what, what you mentioned, one or two. So a lot of people think that we made our sort of build versus buy decisions in a vacuum based on principles alone. And the reality is that there were a lot of constraints as there are today. But back in 2013, we had constraints like the regulatory window was closing in less than a year. So if we didn't launch something that worked and get customers before then, we were dead. We had constraints like we only had $2 million total for everything at the time, if I remember correctly. And, and so some of these things like time and money. And I guess another constraint, right? We, we are in a different ecosystem. So the things that are available for you to build on top of, right? And the things that you may trust or not trust are really sort of specific to the ecosystem in which you're building. So there are a lot of those things that people tend not to think about. But I remember conversations with TSIS, which sells core banking systems, and they wanted more money than we had for the fraud module alone, which would cost more than all of our transactions. And it's like, well, okay, with, with Falcon, or we needed you know, 18 months to tropicalize a system to, to make it compatible with the Brazilian market that was more time than we had entirely. And the cost was also more than the money we had. So I think there's certain things about what was actually available at the time that also guided the decision to, to build certain things, right? Or own our destiny, right? to varying degrees. But on top of all of it, we also, we didn't initially, like we outsourced things that we had no way of shipping before the our time window closed and then brought them in house when they failed to scale with us very painfully, right? In, in ways that I think nobody enjoyed. But so, so I think, you know, why do we build so much? It's, it's a little bit different maybe in, in retrospect, but there are constraints, right? And everybody has, has different constraints. So it's kind of hard to give people generic advice on, on points like that. Necessity being the mother of invention. Lindsay, what do you think? Do you have a particular cultural principle that speaks to you? I think, I mean, everything that Ed and Justin said was great. I would say from a you know macro point of view, the company is always thinking really big to this point. I think Justin said about being a little bit crazy, right? Like having having a really big goal all the time that seems like maybe not achievable, but let's try. I think really kind of sets everybody up to think bigger and, you know, to really not just solve the local problem in front of them, but think about, think about that long-term, which is really healthy for the company. And also that, that empowering of teams on the ground, of people on the ground, making sure that, you know, you're listening to them and not just telling them what to do, right? I think that that is, that's so valuable. And then it loops back to that initial question of like, how do you scale a team? It's like, make sure you hire the people who are going to want to contribute and not not just do what they're told, but actually like have ideas and bring them up and make sure that they feel comfortable bringing them up, right? So that you're sort of always 
you're always going to end up changing the plan and adjusting and that everyone's comfortable with a little bit of chaos, but understanding that we're all going after this crazy big goal. I think that's that's what underlies a lot of the principles at New Bank. Yeah, definitely. And just sharing some of these principles for our listeners, right? Which if they go back and rewind this last segment, I think they'll detect, you know, in your completely off the cuff and genuine answers, like you can see the skeleton of these. Like, so we're we're hungry and we challenge the status quo and we act like owners, not renters. We want our customers to love us fanatically. We build strong and diverse teams. I mean, this is all present in really in what we do every day, at least from my perspective. And, you know, I mean, evidenced in some of your answers and sort of on that last one about building strong and diverse teams. Another thing that really struck me when I joined Newbank was, you know, you often hear people during the interview process talk about cultural fit. And we banished that way of thinking from our hiring process. We said, we don't want people that fit our culture. We want people that will enhance it. So we look for cultural addition. And that was, again, sort of a pretty monumental shift of perspective. I'm wondering, what could you say about that? React to that for me. Yeah, I I like that. I think in terms of, you know, building diverse teams that can mean so many different things. And I I really have appreciated the commitment to that principle, like from everyone at Newbank. Sometimes like I said you hear about it in the interview process, but maybe, you know, it's a little bit different once you're inside, but that's, that's not been true at Newbank. And I think in the engineering team in particular, I find so much, there's so much energy to, to make the team more inclusive and, and just, you know, a great place for everyone to be and to actually do the the hard work and the outreach to make sure that nothing about our interview process or our performance management process or anything else is, you know, you know, is unnecessarily like biased. I mean, we, we all want no bias. We all know that's like kind of impossible, but we're always trying to be better. And I'm so encouraged by that. And, and I have also learned so much working for, you know, a Brazilian company where the context there is different. So I think everyone being open to learn and grow and, be better all the time is, is really wonderful. And it really does make the team stronger. Yeah. And, and certainly I think humility is important. So as we can celebrate some of the things that we've done well and how far we've come, but I think we all realize that again, another thing that we, we constantly say, it's always day one. We, we always have more to learn. We can do better, you know, so even, even in terms of diversity, you know, this is something that we're continuously working to improve. And we, we recognize that we have a long way to go, but we are committed, deeply committed to making it happen. Yeah, that's a that, that's an interesting example. One, one thing we struggled with in the beginning was our initial sort of talent strategy, which was in a nutshell, self-selection. Like we wanted people that were sort of frustrated with the status quo, right? Able to self-select into a role whereby maybe they didn't know you know, all the technologies already. I think that there was a certain, you know, value to that in terms of attracting the sort of people that would be able to deal with the ambiguity that we were facing at the time. But there are clear blind spots there in, in retrospect. And I'm, I'm really happy that we've had the introspection to criticize ourselves and ask ourselves hard questions about all the different axes of diversity and where those blind spots may be affecting us. Because 
you know, the balance of when you ask people to come to you versus when you, you do proactive outreach, like you need to have the whole portfolio of those things to be really getting to everybody. And I think we, we didn't do that for a while, but I'm just happy that that sort of, we keep challenging it and challenging, you know, what we might be missing and, and trying stuff, experimenting and, and trying to get to that goal of, of truly strong and, and diverse teams. So in terms of hiring and interviewing folks and attracting technical talent, we've got some questions here. I'm returning to some of the questions that were submitted by folks. What in your minds makes like a great candidate, a great engineering candidate for Nubank? It's funny. We're all thinking. (laughs) I mean, we've all done like, you know, a million interviews, right? So it's not, I think this is, this is an interesting question because there's some obvious, you know, okay, engineering candidates, there's, we look for certain technical knowledge, but, but this is where, like we just said, we want strong and diverse teams. There's, there's not one profile that's going to make sense. Right. I think people who are excited, right. Who want to solve hard problems. That's great. We've got a lot of hard problems, right. That's, I think if you have that and you have the technical background, then everything else is pretty flexible. I don't know, guys, if you feel different. I, I, was, I was sitting here chuckling about whether or not I should repeat this story again in a different venue. But but years ago, a dear friend of mine, Chad Fowler, sort of posted a thing on Twitter trying to get technical leaders in the industry to respond to this exact question. What makes a good candidate for an engineering team? And there was a lot of conversation. And, and my response into that conversation was, and here we go again. I'll I'll just break the glass ceiling. I said I'm looking for four things. First, giving a shit. Second, giving a shit. Third, having the barest idea what the technology you're using does. And then fourth, giving a shit. I really, really, really overfocus a lot of the time on how engaged somebody is with the problem space or the customer base or the like some aspect of what it is that we do that drives them to want to be involved. And, and then, you know, if they also are competent at, at some flavor of the technology stack, we can usually mold that passion into a productive member of the team, but it's really hard to take a disinterested person and make them, you know, a huge impactful member of a team. So to me, that's always where, where my head is going. Maybe I'll compliment one thing that's that's fairly close to home these days, which is the learning is is constant. So having sort of the curiosity and ability to, you know, teach yourself and the open mindedness to learn new things and the drive to continue learning new things as everything changes around you, I think is pretty important for someone that's working in technology, uh, you know, folks that don't have that or, or tend to like want to do exactly the thing that they already know, either get stuck or are dismayed when the context they find themselves in doesn't match their expectations. So that resilience and that curiosity to sort of, you know, take what, take what comes and leverage that as a way to grow. I think that's pretty important to, to work in an environment like, like new banks. But some things that we're not we don't overfocus on, for example, where do you sit? <laughs> what country do you live in? Why do you live there? Have you been a closurist for 12 years? There are parts that, you know, I've been in the industry now for 30 years, gulp, and I have been through on both sides of it 
many, many, many terrible interview processes. And one thing that I'm super stoked about in terms of you know how I see New Bank approaching this is that we are super focused on the people in general and not on some specific criteria or check the box background item. You know, I've seen other companies over focus on. And so uh, I'm very pleased with the way we approach the market for talent that way. I remember uh, an early investor in Newbank. We, we used to respond to like diligence requests. And there was one that was like, tell me that the educational credentials of each of your like engineering <laughs> team members. And we, we had like literally never considered that <laughs> before. And like, we had to go do this massive effort to try to figure out like who had actually finished college. And it was just something that it, it never computed. And that's sort of like, tell me how many years of experience or tell me which, you know, which, which thing it's just not something, it's not a language that, that we really have internally. So that was a funny I'm not sure that we got that investment round from that investor in particular, <laughs> but uh, I remember struggling massively to complete that spreadsheet. That's funny. On a related topic, but slightly different, there are always folks that want to know is like, you know, what would I need to do to be hired by Newbank or a company like Newbank? But we have just as many folks probably listening to the podcast that are already hired somewhere and they, they're in their careers. And, you know, the three of you have had very successful careers. What advice would you share with an engineer who's trying to improve and you know work their way up the career ladder? What advice do you give them for enhancing their success? I can say a few things about this one. The first one is that it's not a ladder. It can take any any number of shapes or paths. And similar to something Ed said, I I always think about sort of my steps in my career is like what was I learning? And also, how was I helping? Right. I think those those are both important. And so, if I get to a place where I feel like either one of those is not true, then it's time for a change. And that change is not always a step up in a ladder. Right. So, I think sideways can be really, really helpful. Right. You like gain skills and knowledge and background over time. I've taken a couple of roles that I wasn't even necessarily very excited about. One of my favorite examples is I used to work for Wayfair and I ran the like a testing team for a while. And it was really interesting, but I was not necessarily super motivated to run a testing team, but I really, really wanted to have run a testing team. So having that then on the resume and having that experience and being able to speak to that has been really valuable. So kind of approaching career growth, like I said, less as a ladder and more as a collecting of experiences has been really valuable for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like sometimes we organize the capabilities and competencies that you accrue over time into a ladder as if you just go and 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 climb it, right? Like, oh, the next thing I'm gonna get is, you know, X capability. And in my experience, that's not how it feels. It feels more rotational. Like you are intentionally putting yourself into situations where you're less comfortable or less experienced in order to learn something new. And I think one of the axes, I've mentioned a couple things related to this already on this on this podcast, but one of the axes is sort of where in the organization or what sort of an organization you are engaging with. So working up in a customer-facing team, right? And really buying into the problem you're solving for customers, working down in a platform team, right? Where you're building tooling for other people in your organization, everything in between. I think those sorts of 
understanding the different contexts in which you can work and in different sort of layers in the organization and in the system is a great way to build out and, and sort of eliminate blind spots. I know there are some people really know what they want, right? In which case the specialization thing may take you on a different path, but a lot of people are generalists to some extent. And I think thinking about your career in terms of the rotations and how and and what that's going to expose you to, as opposed to the climbing of something, right? And what that's going to give you is I think the 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 way I like to think about it. Yeah, I had someone describe it as tours of duty one time, right? So you can have multiple tours of duty at one company, or you can have tours of duty across different companies. But I kind of like that phrase to understand like the the collecting of those experiences. And we talk about this internally all the time now that we're trying to encourage more what we call lateral transfers, right? Of people moving around between horizontal versus vertical teams or teams that are working on platforms versus teams that are working on services or features, teams that are closer to the design part of the world, teams that are closer to the architecture. Regardless of what those distinctions are, we're trying to encourage people to take more advantage of the fact that not only is Nubank larger than it used to be, but it's growing so fast that at any given moment, there are more open positions than there were yesterday. Like there's always going to be more opening for talented people. And we shouldn't always have to go to the market to find people. We should have and encourage people to do these tours of duty internally. I've always viewed getting outside of the team you're on as a huge benefit. You know, we've talked about the, the grass is always greener mentality. I love it when people get a chance to experience how another team works. I love it even more if they get that experience without having to leave the company. There's so much variety in what we are doing as an organization that you shouldn't have to leave in order to get exposed to something radically different than, than your current. And you're, you only get stronger when you have those, those opportunities. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even have to leave the team that you're on to get that experience. So one thing that I often encourage people to do is get on the incident response team or just jump in and help fight a fire. You'd be surprised how much you're going to learn about the stack in general, how other teams work, the impact, the direct impact that we have on customers. You, you, I mean, it's just a laboratory for learning. Well, and an incident also has the, the huge benefit of burning away a lot of the ceremony and cruft that most people like end up getting trapped in. You know, I wander into a new team and we've got a six month horizon and I'm going to spend a lot of time learning all of these details. But when there's an incident going on, man, you got to be laser focused on what's exactly important right now. And you get right past all that ceremony pretty quickly. So it's a it's a super valuable focusing agent. Yeah, definitely. And but that definitely resonates with me, the whole tour of duty concept. It's funny, my brother, who's a doctor. Hey, Wes, you know, it occurs to me that Doctors do this all the time, right? You go through med school and you have your rotations. You do a little bit of geriatrics and, you know, cardiology and orthopedics and whatever it is. And you go from one thing to the other and gain valuable experience, even if you know that ultimately your specialty is going to be something else. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy because, you know, specialists are incredibly important and you can go incredibly deep in an area, but it's it's never in a vacuum, Right whatever you build, it's going to touch something else and having at least passing knowledge of those other things and how they work or how the people that work on them think is incredibly valuable. So we have another question here. This one's kind of a fun one and more of a personal one. What got you into tech originally? How did you come to this field? 
I'll tell my story again. It's easy enough. I was a hobbyist programmer in childhood, but I ended up working as a work-study student all through my college days doing statistical programming for uh, a research professor who was studying toxins. We were doing modeling of cancer-causing agents from factories and, and other industrial sites and, and modeling you know, increases in cancer uh, rates in surrounding populations and, and primarily focused on environmental racism. Hey, Jay, he'll never hear this episode. But after I graduated, I was living with some folks and came home from my work study job, which is no longer work study, saying that I really needed to get a job outside of the school boundaries. And my roommate at the time was a programmer at a very small company. And he handed me uh, a copy of Visual Basic 3, actually, and said, if you can do anything useful with this in the next three weeks, we'll give you a job. That guy was Stu Halloway. Hey, Stu. And I did. And the rest is now history. So that is how I ended up being a professional programmer. I can tell my story. Both of my parents worked in technology. So it always it was always kind of a background option. Although if you had talked to me when I was in high school, I would have told you that I wanted to be the next Alan Greenspan. So that's that's where my head was at in the 90s. But I did I did try my hand at some early like web programming, but was actually kind of put off by it by some of the the boys in class who did not want me crashing their their club. And then when I went to college, I looked at both economics programs to be Alan Greenspan and computer science programs, just because it's what my parents did. And I kind of backed into computer science and I ended up studying both, but it really, from there was a pretty standard trajectory from computer science degree to standard job offer. And from there, but I think the, it was not obvious growing up. I did not program things as a kid. It just kind of clicked right about the time I went to college. That's me. I did the the classic programming of basic computers, I think as a young kid, building choose your own adventure books and things like that. And just being sort of amazed by the fact that out of nothing, like some something is born. And so that was a sort of like, it felt more like a game to me. It wasn't something that I necessarily thought of as work. I went to college, got a computer science degree. I found it much harder than programming because it was very theoretical. There was a lot of I still remember like seared into my memory, actually discrete mathematics and thinking like, this is not possible. Like this is, this is not humans can't do this. And then, well, if humans can do this, I need to make sure I'm on the right like lab group so that somebody can do it for me because it's not happening. And so that was sort of, I don't know, discouraging, like going through to like a more theoretical program, which is, which is not my, my strength. Leaving college, I did other stuff. So I, I went into management consulting for a while and sort of bounced around in different random things and then went into investing and in, in looked at a lot of different random companies, focusing a bit more on tech over time. So it wasn't until actually co-founding Nubank that I had a job, like a, an actual job in technology, in, in the building of technology, right? As opposed to the sort of you know, giving advice about or judging somebody else's or putting evaluation on X thing. And so it's a bit sad that detour, like there were a bunch of valuable things along the way, but I knew as a very young person that that sort of joy of, you know, building and I lost it for a bit and uh, finally got it back. So happy, better late than never, I think. 
Very cool. Now we've got another fun personal question for you. Tell us about your hobbies. What do you all do for fun? I can start. I don't love this question. I always sort of pause with this question because I don't have one clear like, oh, I I ski. I'm a skier. Like that's not true. I'm actually a terrible skier. But I, I like to try a lot of different things and I like to travel, which I think is born of the same. Like I love change. I want to try different things. I want to see different things. So if you name a, somebody else's hobby, I've probably done that once or three times and I'm probably bad at it, but I had a lot of fun. How about you, Ed? We, what do you? Oh, go ahead, Justin. I was, I was just going to say, we already mentioned that I play music in a crappy cover band. Hey, Atomic Blonde. And I make hot sauce. <laughs> and I cook. I do a lot of cooking. <laughs> and your band's not crappy. Hey, Atomic Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say the last nine years of Newbank have been pretty hard on, on the hobby side of things. A lot of blurring of lines between work and life and life and work. So I, I guess similar to Lindsay, like I don't have, you know, specific hobbies that sort of define me as a person. But if I think about part-time hobbies, really like surfing when when I find my rhythm and it's really rough when you're out of shape. So that's sort of fits and starts. And uh, similar to Lindsay, really like traveling and then haven't, not just because of COVID, but it's been a while. So some, maybe some like different answers for the past few years than the years before that. If you consider living in Brazil to be a hobby, then I do a lot of that. Awesome. So actually, I'm going to put a, a different spin on this. We'll take we'll take one more swing at this question, but with a kind of a different spin and like maybe making it a little bit more relevant. What do you do to decompress? How do you how do you unwind maybe at the end of a long week? What strategies do you have for like coping with stress or pressure or any of that stuff? And I think that's super relevant for folks, especially, you know, the last couple of years have been mighty difficult for a lot of people. So just curious how you how you handle that. And we can't say drinking, right? Uh, I'm sure we can. Let's be honest. We're we're all about radi <laughs> radical transparency. There, there, I will give one thing or two things. Like I really look forward to the weekends to see Premier League football. I lived in London for a couple of years and sort of got hooked on that. So it sort of marks the passing of time. It's an event, right? You can't get enough of it or I can't get enough of it. And more recently, the I've started to get excited when the Formula One races come around and I actually went to the, the race in Sao Paulo here that happened. So those are those are nice things. They sort of break break up the, the week from the weekend in a really clear way. So I, li I like that to decompress. Fun. Oh, we have we have plenty of F1 fans where we can talk more about Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton some other time. But how about you, Lindsay? What do you do to kind of unwind and take the edge off? Yeah, I, good. I do not watch F1, so I don't know what any of those words mean. But I think prior to the pandemic, I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of introverted. So the recoup for me is some like quiet time that can be like nature time or, or just being sort of restful and away from people. But now that the pandemic has happened, I actually find it's much more helpful to be around people. So I really look forward to a weekend activity that's just getting together with some friends actually in person and being able to, to be social. But I also, I like to run. I like, like I said, nature, hikes, things like that. Just a little bit of getting away and giving my brain some time to organize its thoughts. So some quiet movement nature time is usually my my go-to right on 
Justin, you break guitars or I, I'm not going to lie. The, the, I, I think I even said this to Ed when, when we joined, I, I really consider myself less of a technologist or a manager than a performer. Like if you ask me really, truly what it is that I do for a living, I'm, I'm a performer and, and a lot of leadership in any size technical or any size organization is, is performance, but it doesn't give you quite the same feedback as say being on stage. And so I really get a lot of benefit out of that. People will find this weird, but I like, I went and gave a talk to a group of architects not too long ago. And I like, that was decompression for me. Like a lot of people are terrified to go up on a stage, but for me, that's, that is, uh, absolute just, uh, relaxation. So I do that. Like I said, I like to cook and, uh, I used to really like to run and then I got old and now it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you people are weird. You like running and getting on stage in front of others. That's <laughs> I'm having trouble relating to that. It's, you know, that's why they always say, you know, you, you, you don't want two of the same people in a relationship. You want to have compliments. <laughs> All right. We're coming near the end here. And one of the things that we like to do on the way out is ask our guests to share some parting advice. So maybe take that one in turn as well. You told me this was coming before we started. And in all this time, I have not come up with a witty piece of advice. This is a really hard one to end on. I should have been listening to other other episodes to get some ideas. I don't know if this counts as advice, but I think just something useful to reinforce. There are a lot of problems in the world. A lot of them sound really big and look really big. There are a lot of problems within New Bank. And I think that feeling of being overwhelmed is very common or the feeling that like oh, it's infinite, right? And I think that what I hope, right, and what I wish for, for folks listening is that you just stick at it and do a little bit at a time and just grind away at things and eventually big things happen. And, you know, Nubank is definitely an example of grinding away at, at the details until, until big things happen. So I would just keep that in mind when it gets frustrating and discouraging, which it, which it does for, for all of us. My favorite piece of advice right now to remind people of is that you don't have to have an opinion about everything. You can just let stuff sail past you. In fact, the number of things about which you must have an opinion are remarkably small. And you'll be surprised at how freeing it is to just be able to watch something sail by and go, I don't have to think about that. I like that one. And it's I'm going to add on to it so that I can have my little piece of advice. I, I agree. You don't always need to have an opinion. But if you're going to have an opinion, have a strong opinion, but keep it loosely held. So I love this phrase, strong opinions, loosely held, meaning like have that opinion, be clear about it, but be willing to be talked out of it if there's new information. When the facts change, I change my mind. Famous quote. Well, you're a scientist. Yeah. All right. Thank you, all of you, for joining us today, Lindsay, Ed, Justin, and... Thank you, everyone who's tuned in to this slightly different episode of the Cognicast. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Christian. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Cheers, gang. Your host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. That's at C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-R-O-M-N-E-Y. 
Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cotton Cast is produced by Jared Binford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nasca at nascamusic.com. I'm Robert Randolph. Please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks for listening to episode 169 of the Cognicast.